just tell this to people who are watching that the hens are incorrect. Yes. Because they have wings. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, I don't really have many announcements. There's not a whole lot going on. Please pray for uh, the ones that are listed in our church praying. And uh, I hope that's like on your refrigerator or something, especially for Della. We're praying for her. And uh, we're going to be heading out this Friday coming up to Luke Clan, so we'd appreciate prayers for that. A lot of coordination there to take care of uh, things in the long trip. So we'll, uh, we'll do that. Um, offerings, if you brought them, we'll get them to Starlet. I don't know if she's here or not. I don't know the lobby or not. Uh, but we'll get them to her. And does anyone else have an announcement? Okay. Easy, easy peasy. Uh, the scripture for meditation this morning. Wait a minute, am I ahead of myself here? Right, okay. Yeah, scripture for meditation. Uh, Genesis 13, uh, 1 through 18. Genesis 13, 1 through 18. Page 18 in the Pew Bible, if you have them. And just a word for those that are watching online. The hymns today are wrong, so I'm sorry about that. You'll have to look up the, the hymns as we do it. Uh, they are incorrect. Okay? All right, so Genesis 13, 1 through 18.
Let's open our service with prayer. Phil, will you pray for us this morning? Man standing for our first hymn. Please turn in your brown hymnals to number 501 501 in the brown. Thank you. 
congregational favorite this morning? <laughs> Dale. I'm not answering that question. <laughs> Dale. <laughs> 227 in the red. 227 in the red. Oh, 327 in the red. All right. 
Our scripture reading this morning is found in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 25. It's 1834 in your pew Bible. Colossians 3, 12 through 25. Those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let me take your red hymnal again and turn to number 342. 342 in the red. Christ. 
Our scripture text this morning is found in Colossians chapter 3. In our last study on living faith, we began to look at some of the practical areas of life that faith in God commands us to obey. We talked about faith in marriage. The origin of marriage, it was instituted by God between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship and not as sociologists teach, as the outgrowth of societal frustration with polygamy. No, the partnership of marriage for a believer is as it was with the first married couple, one man, one woman, together. Samson sinned against this principle when he pressured his father to obtain a Philistine woman for his wife. Remember that. His parents asked, aren't there any women in Israel for you? Good question. But he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. And that cost him his wife. Remember, they burned her. The Philistines did. And later, it cost him his eyes. Because Delilah, another Philistine, deceived him because the Philistines hated him so. We learned that marriage is more than a godly outlet for sexual expression. It is a partnership of 
soul, of thinking, of goals and aspirations. It's a oneness in faith, which is essential if you have the choice. I say if, because sometimes marriages happen before you're saved. You're married to an unbeliever, and then you get saved later on, and he or she does not. Faith values marriage by preserving it and revering it and by promoting marriage, which is the norm of how God propagated the race, unless he gives a special grace to remain celibate. Today we want to look at faith and the family. Good subject for Father's Day. The first observation I'm making is that children are part of God's original plan of marriage. I mean, think about this. When we think of family, our minds go to children. Indeed, we are all part of someone's family by birth or by adoption. Usually a name is attached to a family. The Smiths, the Joneses, the McCrackens, whatever. And it's the last name of the father or patriarch of the family line, which is under consideration. As we learned last week with regard to marriage, children were and are part of the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, you see, instead of the evolutionary hype that man evolved from some lower primate, from apes, recent scientific discovery in in genetics addresses a particular, this is interesting, a particular DNA structure unique to women and only passed on through the female or mother line. Let me read it for you from the report. 1987, a team at the University of California at Berkeley published a study comparing the mtDNA, the mitochondrial DNA chromosomes, composed in the outer layer of cells, not in the nucleus, but the outer layers. They compared them of 147 people from five of the world's geographical locations. And they concluded that all 147 had the same female ancestor. She's now called the mitochondrial Eve. We just call her Eve. We found her in the Bible in the first book. Well, it seems that we all have these mitochondrial chromosomes, whether we are male or female, but the chromosomes are carried only through the mother. I find this very interesting. Only through the mother. Because the creation account of Genesis says this, Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Genesis 3, verse 20. <laughs> More than 6,500 years ago, according to the genetics trace, 
made in that study. We are in a young earth, and man's appearance on the earth was at the exact time God's word indicates chronologically. Science confirms, though unwittingly and unwillingly, they have to admit, that there was one woman, Eve, from whom the entire race can trace its biological DNA. I think, find that absolutely fascinating. And all of this tells us that when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, their children Cain and Seth, Seth who replaced Abel whom Cain killed, they did just that. They filled the earth. The entire human race, singular, derives its existence from this one couple obeying God's mandate to reproduce and populate the earth. The world's population today is just over 7 billion. 7 billion. That's a drop in the bucket. When one considers the auto industry BLL alone was $50 billion. More on the way. The world's land mass, the land mass, is 57 billion 511 million billion square miles. I'm getting lost in the billions and the millions, aren't you? <laughs> if Australia were plotted out in one quarter acre lots, one quarter acre lots, everyone could live in Australia alone and the rest of the planet remain unpopulated. Wow. So much for the population overload, scare tactics that drive such organizations as Planned Parenthood and the World Health Organization because they have an agenda for abortion. There's no need to kill babies to save the planet. There's plenty of ground and land and all of that to feed and house the world. What I am saying is that God made the earth mass sufficiently large enough to accommodate his mandate for Adam and Eve to fill the earth with people. The psalmist said, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3. Isaiah confessed, Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel for the Lord Almighty, who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah 8, verse 18. We are signs of the Father in heaven. Children were, and they are, part of God's original plan of marriage. Then secondly, Christian parents are given God's children on loan to raise for him. I know we often claim ownership. We say, well, 
this is my daughter Sarah or this is my son Charles as we're introducing our family members to friends. But the reality is that we have our children as a heritage from the Lord as we read in Psalm 127. And that brings with it an obligation to God to see to it that we raise them in an environment that will result in their salvation, will result in their their service to Christ, if God's grace rests upon them. Now, it's true. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said that. You can't force his hand. He's going to do what he's going to do. He says he'll have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. And he'll pardon whom he wants to pardon. That's his business, not ours. But we have a responsibility to do our role in terms of exposure of our children to the things of God. I mean, how are they going to learn unless you are exposing them to the truth of the gospel? The world isn't going to teach them this. The world's part of the problem. Know how often the Bible connects children of believing parents, people of faith, with the obligation of teaching them about God. For example, when Israel was given the law of God through the law of God through Moses, the final instruction he gave to them was this. Let me read it for you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Verse in the Bible there that says, you know, write out your scriptures, put it on plaques, hang the plaques on your gates, in your home, on your walls, so on. Again, God said to Abraham, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord in doing what's right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Well, what did he promise? Genesis 18, verse 19, he promised Abraham would be made into a great nation. What's that? That's babies. That's children. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Asaph, the great psalmist, composed a psalm indicating the ongoing generational responsibility of parenting. And this is what he wrote. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter Hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. 
the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders of what he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Now we're into the grandchildren, aren't we? The children, the next generation. Psalm 78, verse 2 through 6. You see how the teaching is to continue from generation to generation. You know, brethren, it only takes one generation, and that's about 38 years, for a family, for a family untaught to become totally agnostic or atheistic in view of their things of God. One generation, 38 years. Well, what we have in America are multiple generations of people who have never been in a gospel preaching church. They've never been to Sunday school. They've never been in a Bible study. They've never been taught how to pray. They do not know who Jesus is, though we might think that's absolutely astonishing, and it is. They know nothing of the creation account. They know nothing of man's fall, of sin, though they sin every day. They're ignorant of heaven while being children of the devil. They're unchurched, uneducated, locked into sin and death with no hope. That's our society. Paul put it this way. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Yes. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope, without God in the world. Ephesians 2 verse 12. That was us. That was all of us. And it's still the bulk of the world. It's the bulk of America and the other nations as well. Ephesians 2 verse 12. And I say it's a deplorable state to be in. Not to know God, the gospel, or anything like that. devil's doing his work are we doing God's work as Christian parents we have an obligation to correct that Paul says fathers do not exasperate your children instead I'm still reading scripture instead bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Don't frustrate them. Don't exasperate them. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Solomon did this in the Proverbs, which are basically his instructions to his children. My son, he says, keep your father's commands. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way of life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Proverbs 6, verse 20 through 24. But notice he's allotting the commandments of God. 
and they ha they have to be taught. And it was Solomon who gave us this wonderful promise that we like to quote and to which we cling for all of our adult children who are yet strangers to Christ. And that verse is this. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not turn from it. Proverbs 22 verse 6. We like that. We like it because it gives us hope. I hope it's not a false hope. See, what do you mean? Well, you've got to be doing your part to claim the promise. What's the part? Train the child in the way he should go. That's your part. When he's old, then he'll remember. He won't depart. But if you're not doing the training and the exposure and all of that, you can't claim the promise. What I'm saying here is that godliness involves training. Think of how teaching is involved in all for life, not just in children, but for all of us. Young Timothy, being tutored by Paul for the ministry, was told, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Not just going to happen by osmosis, Timothy. You've got to train yourself to be godly. How are you going to do that? Well, you have to avoid certain things. What? Godless myths and old wives' tales. And you have to put on other things. What? Train yourself to be godly. He wasn't going to become godly by osmosis, nor by sitting around all day, wasting all his hours in idle pursuits. No, he was told to apply himself. Let me read it for you. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Put some effort to your studies spiritually that you might train yourself to be godly. 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Titus, another of Paul's students, was told to encourage the older women of the church so that they could train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Titus 2, verse 4 and 5. Takes training. These texts are illustrative of adults in training. Adults in training. In order to learn how to be obedient to God's word. And when they fail because of laziness and indifference, 
the writer of Hebrews did not hesitate to call them on the carpet and to rebuke them. Let me read it for you. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you (laughs) the elementary truths of God's words all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. You're not acquainted with it. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, verse 11 and following. What is the writer saying? Well, he's saying that stagnation is not acceptable. Reaching a certain spiritual plateau and staying there is not acceptable. You must progress on. But he's also telling them, you're not doing this. You're not doing it. You know, it's interesting how the world has a handle on training for any and everything except knowing God. People go to college to train for a profession. They attend tech schools to learn a skilled trade. Athletes practice day in, day out, shooting balls through a hoop or zipping around on ice with skates or swinging a bat to hit a ball all to bring themselves from a position of ineptness to skilled proficiency in what they view will bring them recognition, money, or pleasure. The world's busy working. But I got to tell you, there will be no active ball players in heaven or hockey players or architects or engineers or mathematicians, or computer geeks, no skilled trades in a realm where the creator of all things and the God of all wisdom rules and reigns with absolute sovereignty. Where his will is all that is ever done and done gladly by those who love him and whom he himself empowers. You can't take these skills with you. They're not going to be necessary in glory. But boy, we put a lot of energy in them. But that said, training in righteousness, training in godliness, training in obedience to the revealed will of God are all things you will not discard in the world to come. They go with you. And for our children, training in these matters can reap an eternal harvest. But I got to tell you, nothing's automatic. Training, training, training. Okay, what about this? What's the methodology for teaching children to know and love God? Well, as you might expect, number one is instruction. How are they going to learn about God in the gospel? It's through instruction. All students right now 
have one thing on their mind at this time of the year, and that is, yo, school is over. School is out. Vacation is here. But that said, there's no vacation. There's no vacation from training in the things of God. We read from Deuteronomy 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be in your heart and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you get up. What I like about this text is the casual, almost unassuming nature of the instruction. Now, there's a place for formal classrooms. But what we have here is a parent living life in an agricultural society whose children are ever-present. We would probably say they're underfoot. (laughs) Wherever he goes, they go. And so he goes about living life. He uses the events of the day to teach his children about God. An example of this is found in the instruction given to the Israelites on sacrificing the perfect lamb of their flock and sprinkling its blood on the doorposts of their Egyptian abodes. Remember that. The night of God's death angel when he took the life of the firstborn in all of Egypt in order to force Pharaoh to expel the Israelites from their land. And we read, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Exodus 12, verse 24 and following. There's a lesson to be learned in Passover. The only way for future generations to know what Passover was all about was if, if mom and dad instructed them on the meaning. They weren't there in Egypt the night this occurred. And yet as an Israelite whose people God rescued and redeemed from Egypt with the blood of a perfect lamb, they needed to know about redemption's story. So too, When we Christian parents instruct our children on Christ and his cross, whom Paul says is our Passover, our Passover lamb, our children are learning God's redemptive story for themselves. And the only way that sinners are forgiven and cleansed and brought into a right relationship with God So then suddenly, suddenly, John's declaration about Jesus begins to make sense. Look, said John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29. People of that day and the children of our Christian teaching 
if we are doing our job, know that John was not talking about some little woolly animal walking across the pasture meadow. No. Because of biblical instruction, they know we are talking about Jesus and his cross, his death that paid the sins of all who believe in him. Thus the charge to look, yes. Look in faith, yes. Look believing, look in trust, look and live. John was talking about Jesus and his cross. There's no shortcut here. You cannot instill godliness into children, into anyone for that matter, apart from instruction. People have to read the Bible. They have to study the Bible so that God's word becomes part of them. Psalm 119 is the model psalm on this because David, the king of Israel, nonetheless saw his wisdom and knowledge of God as essential to his rule and the thing that separated him from his peers. Here's his own words. Because I love your commands more than gold. More than pure gold. Because I consider all your precepts right. I hate every wrong path. Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth. I pant. I long for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do, to those who love your name. What a beautiful statement. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Psalm 119, verse 127 and following. And I would commend to you the whole psalm because it is a praise poem. Lauding the benefits of studying God's word. Children need this first and foremost instruction. David says this is where I get my instruction. I look into the word of God. It tells me who God is. It tells me who I am. It tells me how I relate to God. So instruction needed. Secondly, discipline. There's a need for that. If our children were born into our families innocent, (laughs) free from sin, free from our sin nature, the task of teaching them of God would be much easier. But it's not easy. It's not easy because instead, indeed, the world often thinks of children as being born good. And they use terms like, oh, they're pure, they're innocent, they're naive. And I I see where they're getting this. It's a comparative definition. They look at the adult world of wickedness in which they live. They compare to the naivete in their children and they conclude, well, my child is innocent. They're, They're good in heart. I get it. As Christians, however, we cannot take our definitions from comparatives. Because God looks at the heart and while children may not be into sexual lust and murder and blasphemy. They are definitely in the lying and selfishness and greed and covetousness and temper tantrums. 
and the like on their level as they express their sinful nature. And we have God's word on this. Genesis 5, verse 1 and following. This is the written account of Adam's line, writes Moses. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. In his own image. And he named him Seth. You know, by the time Adam procreated Seth, he had already fallen into sin and had sired the first murderer, Cain, who killed his brother, Abel. So sin was already in the bloodline of Adam's children. Why is that? Because sinners beget sinners. That's why. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he confessed to God, Surely... I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51 verse 5. What a non-statement. His adultery as an adult had its roots in the sin nature of his birth. Sinners sin. That's what sinners do, right? They do that because that's what they are. I are a sinner, so I sin. And we don't like to hear it, but I got to say it, and that is this all the seeds, the seeds of every sin are in us. And it's only God's restraining grace that keeps us from exercising all of that sin. The seeds are there. Gives me chills. The psalmist writes in Psalm 58, verse 3 Even from birth the wicked go astray. Wow. From birth. He goes on From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. From the womb. Ooh, that gives a whole. <laughs> different definition to our babies moms dads oh she's so cute she's so innocent we know it's a comparative statement compared to me compared to you mom yeah After the great flood of Noah's day, God said, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil. I'm reading scripture. Is evil from childhood. From childhood. Genesis 8, verse 21. Ooh. Every inclination of his heart is evil. From childhood. We don't like to think about these things, but God has to be true and man has to be the liar. 
So there's a lot of liars out there among the men and women. When they view their children through rose-colored glasses. We can do a lot of harm that way by viewing our children that way. Not my son, not my daughter. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. That's about as clear as you can put it. This is such a universal truism that in the third chapter of the same book, Paul wrote, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Romans 3 verse 12. Not your baby, not your toddler, not even one. What might be very startling to some parents is to read the list in Romans 1 verse 28 and following where Paul describes the kind of sinful behavior which issues from what he calls a depraved mind. He wrote it. I didn't write it. It's God's word, not Paul's word. What are these depraved behaviors? Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. On and on the list goes. It's a long list. It's full of horrendous sins against God. And just about in the middle of the list we read, they disobey their parents. What? (laughs) Whoa, how'd that get in there? Worse, read the conclusion. These things, right, writes Paul, deserve death, verse 32. How so? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's how so. Ezekiel put it this way, the soul who sins is the one that's going to die. The son will not, he goes on to write, the son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor the father share in the guilt of the son. You're going to die for your own sins. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Children have their own guilt as well as the parents. I don't think we do our children any favor if we minimize or worse dismiss the sin that they do on their level as trivial in comparison to the wickedness perpetrated by adults. I mean, think about it. Sin is sin, right? Payment for sin is death. Guess what? Children, children die. As children, they die. Adults need a Savior, but children need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior there is. And he has told us, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Your kids, your grandchildren can be saved. They need to be saved. Matthew 19, verse 14. All this being true, how are we, along with Abraham and Hannah and Solomon and others, how are we going to raise our families so that they come to know 
God as Savior. Yeah, instruction, true, okay. What about this? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Or Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So, instruction and reproof. And what about the discipline of the rod? In some countries of the world, spanking your kids will get net you a a little trip from the to the Department of Social Services, and they will confiscate your children, or worse, jail time for you. The United States is also in that whole mode. It's moving in that direction. But we are charged by God. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but instead... Let God remold your minds from within. That's the Phillips translation, Romans 12, verse 2. Biblical sanity must rule the Christian life. We do not beat our kids to death. But we do discipline them when they defy our instruction. Some of the most pathetic displays of wimpy parroting that I have witnessed is a mom or a dad trying to reason with a defiant toddler. Have you ever seen that in a grocery store? Now, Jimmy, please don't throw the canned food out of the grocery cart. You might hit someone and hurt them. You wouldn't want to hurt them, would you? (laughs) Just about that time, another can goes flying down the aisle. I can guarantee you the children will choose public places to throw fits because they know they have you compromised. You have to be consistent. The scripture calls us to believe God. What does God say? It says this. He who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Proverbs 13, 24. That's the direct 100%, 180 degree opposite of the world's philosophy. But there you have it from God. I didn't say it, God said it. We want it again? Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. That's a pretty tough statement. You don't discipline him, you're a party to his death. One again, punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Proverbs 23, 14. Verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he won't die. I'm reading scripture. Why won't he die? Well, because you're going to use restraint. That's why. You're not going to beat him to death. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline 
will drive it far from him. Or again, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. And on Father's Day, I would also say it would disgrace his father too. Proverbs 29, 15. Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Oh, and then what about this one? The Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children, and you are not true sons. Hebrews 12, verse 6 and 5. I don't think many parents have thought through that one. But God is saying that he does not want unruly brats in his family. And neither should we. Sometimes the only way to get through to an out of control child is a swat on the bottom. And we need to be consistent. Every defiance to your authority, not just when you're at your wit's ends. Immediately, not when you get off the phone. I remember a time I was talking to a pastor in Florida on the phone. We were having a nice conversation about spiritual things. And he interrupted our conversation. He says, Pastor Luke, uh, you got to excuse me a minute. I have to go deal with my son. I thought, oh, what's going on? I heard in the background what, what was going on. Dad had to go discipline his son. He came back and he apologized. He says, my son has the tendency to utilize opportunities when he thinks I can't do anything to him. To his own advantage. I said, what do you mean? He says, he saw that I was on the phone to you. So his thinking is, dad's tied up with somebody on the phone. He's too busy to deal with me. I can do what I want. And of course what he wanted was disobedience (laughs) to dear dad's rules. So, teaching, the rod of discipline. What about reproof? What's a reproof? It's verbal correction. I've always taken the position of never using the rod alone. But always accompanying it with reproof. One time, one of my children violated the don't get in the cookie jar rule. The chocolate evidence was all over the child's face. So I said, did you eat cookies from the cookie jar? 
No, Dad. So they got a spanking. And then I added this verbal correction. Do you know why Daddy spanked you? Uh-huh. Why? Because I ate the cookies. Wrong. Wrong. You were spanked because you lied to Daddy about the cookies. You see, the verbal correction was necessary. It was the key thing, lest my child conclude that eating cookies was somehow sinful, but lying was not. Solomon writes, He who heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 10, verse 17. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I didn't say that. Solomon said that. Proverbs 12, verse 1. He who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Proverbs 13, verse 18. Boy, it just goes on and on. Proverbs 15, verse 5. A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Verse 10, same chapter. Stern discipline awaits him who leaves the path. He who hates correction is going to die. Verse 31. He who listens to the life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. Verse 32. He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. It just goes on. A rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes to a fool. Proverbs 17, verse 10. You getting the picture here? Discipline, instruction. It brings wisdom. It brings correction. When we come to the New Testament text, the scripture says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching. Okay. Rebuking. Mm-hmm. Correcting. Mm-hmm. And training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 Don't give your kids your opinions. They don't need that. Give them a word from God for what they are saying and live what you say because they can catch a phony in a heartbeat. Our goal should be what? It should be to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you... Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how, Timothy, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 13 and following. Oh, and, and by the way, 
Where did uh, Timothy get all his wonderful instruction? From his mother and his grandmother. Well, where's dad? As far as we can figure out, dad was a pagan. Nothing kind is ever said or even remembered about Timothy's dad. It's always about mom and grandma. Which is okay, ladies. If the men don't step up, if they're not a Christian, you need to step up. And God will honor that. Our goal is that our children, instructed in the word of God, disciplined through the temperate, consistent use of the rod, corrected in their sin by reproof, will with us not depart from these things when they're old, but will come to know and love Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. You know, there's only one way of salvation for kids and adults alike. And that's to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your life will tell whether your faith is real or bogus. Real or bogus. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Very thankful. It's like you said through your servant David that your word is a lamp unto our feet. It directs the path. It illuminates the path in which we are to go. Help us to be people who want to walk that path. Remember that tale of Pilgrim's progress and how he got off the path at times and when he got off the path he was rebuked and he was disciplined to the point where he got back on the path and that's us at times we hear what we want to hear we disdain what we don't want to hear We choose between what we want to do and what the word of God says we ought to do. We suffer consequences for our disobedience. But it doesn't seem to bother us that those are signs of being in defiance of the God that's going to judge us someday. Before whom we're going to have to stand and give an account. Help us as kids. Help us as adults. To think of you and to love you. Open our hearts and our eyes to appreciate the fact that we are raised in Christian homes. That we had Christian upbringing. And today this, we think of our fathers. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, number 342. 342 in Trinity. Stand as we sing.
Did I turn to the wrong one? It's 535 in the hymnal. Sorry. No, we just said it was the one previous. So 535. 535? Yes, sir. 
what? That our homes would be the center for God's grace to be outpoured. I hope you pray for your kids, your grandkids, that the Lord will save them and bring them into the kingdom of God. Help them to live righteous lives and obedient. Because God's taken notice of disobedient children and how we can be disobedient parents. He also takes note of men like Samuel that were raised in a godly home. Thinking of Hannah raising her children, Mary raising her child. And so we're under scrutiny by God. May his grace be upon us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being fathers today, for being parents, for giving us kids. What does the scripture say? It says this, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're your gift to us. They're your inheritance to us. May we go right by them, do right by them. We want to see our children come to know Jesus as Savior. We want their lives changed. We cannot fathom the idea that they would enter into destruction. And so we pray earnestly, O Lord, send your Spirit upon them. We look into the Scripture and we notice how often you minister to children. And one time your disciples tried to keep the mothers from bringing their babies to you. And you rebuked your disciples and told them that of such was the kingdom of heaven. Let the little children come to me, you said. So I pray for mothers and dads today and all of our children. May they be part of your kingdom, we ask, for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you. I do. I got a card here for you.
if it's inconvenient, you can switch dates with God. I don't think he'll be here. You don't think he'll be here when? For either day? No. Said something about going over to Grand Rapids. So I should have been going 